Just one programming note before we begin. When I recorded this interview with uh, Jennifer Rink of Hilton, Hilton had 13 different brands. And in the short period of time between that day and this one, they've added two more. So congratulations to Hilton. And Jennifer, thank you for your time and your wisdom. Welcome to this edition of Innoversity's Great Mind series. Today we're honored to have Jennifer Rink with us. Um, honored, thrilled, excited. Uh, Jennifer, your, your, your resume and your background and your current job are, uh, are remarkable things. Jennifer is the Vice President of Learning for Hilton Hotels. Um, and I don't want to give out your age, but you have been at Hilton for uh, almost 23 years. And you have been through a, a, a whole series of really interesting roles, almost all of them in human resource or talent acquisition or uh, training. I, I looked at your bio a bit. You started out in 1996 as the regional director of training for Hilton. And, uh, and then reading your resume, you've obviously succeeded and you've worked your way up the ladder all the way to, to the vice presidency position. Everybody who listens to our podcast, and this is a global audience, um, I'm sure knows the Hilton brand. Um, and Jennifer, please correct my numbers. This is from Wikipedia, so uh, you know if, if they're if they're wrong, you can you can correct them. But what I found was 570 different properties. Sound about right? Yeah, for the Hilton brand itself, that's approximately right. We actually have 13 brands in our portfolio, and we are um, about 400,000 sort of team members strong. So it is a really amazingly large, exciting organization that I feel like I've had the honor and privilege to sort of uh, grow along with it as we've changed and and, uh, sort of transformed. Well, one of one of the wonderful things about you is is first of all being with the same organization, but second secondly being in this field for more than two decades. Uh, that's a bit what I want to talk about, uh, and and give our audience an opportunity to to learn from you. What's changed as someone who's overseen training since 1996? What's different? What's changed? Yeah, that's a great question, Jerry. So when I started, I think even going back a little before 96, um, one of the things that was sort of, uh, you know, was a part of the learning process was really everything was instructor led, everything was in person, all of the learning that took place took place in a classroom style environment. And I think that's how people thought about learning. And certainly for us, um, at that time, in 1996, we had just come out of an acquisition. We had purchased, we were a single-branded hotel company. We were really only focused on the Hilton brand and certainly the Hilton brand in the U.S. only um, for a good portion of that, uh, in that we did not have the international part of our business So it was very much U.S.-centric, classroom-based, you go somewhere to be trained. And that's truly, the I think, the transformative pieces of what's happened now in our business. And we are, you know, looking at learning in a lot different sort of ways these days. We are looking at learning in the space of our everyday world, 
things like, you know, e-learning, things like virtual instructor-led learning, those were not even um, on the horizon. So that's really, for me, what's changed is how do you take and transform not only the platforms for which we deliver learning now, but we've also had to transform what do good you know, instructors look like and what is a facilitator or facilitator coach? It's just a totally different, a different thing. Well, and when, when you started, you, you, you're dealing with one brand. Now you're dealing with 13. Right. And those brands are very different all the <laughs> way from some of the finest hotels in the world uh, to sort of a more mid-level hotel, um, kind of a weekend traveler type of thing. By the way, I just I want to tell you I am a, a member of uh, Hilton Honors Points. And uh, if there's any way that you could just randomly give me 100,000 points, I'd, I'd, yeah, I'd very much appreciate that. Well, thank you. We appreciate your business is how I'll respond to that. Yeah. We we, we love it. And again, our customer loyalty is critical to anybody's business, but certainly for us and what we do. And and you're absolutely right. Like we have something we think for every um, segment of our travel population and we want to be the right hotel choice for the right people at the right time. So you're right. I mean, in some of those hotels, we have, you know, 30 employees. Some of the hotels we have um, 1500. Right. How do you, how do you train to those different brands? Yeah. Is, is, is the training the same? Do you, do you, uh, so most of the clients that we work with are companies for whom brand is profoundly important. We do work with William Sonoma. We do work with Lockheed Martin and, and, and some of the larger restaurant chains. Uh, branding is hugely important, but they don't have the variability in brand that you have. How do you do that? Yeah, no, we definitely have to customize our learning for the various brands that we manage. So to your point, I think at the heart of everything are some real basics, right? Like what are the service skills and what are the service recovery mechanisms and triggers that we need to teach our team members irregardless of brand, right? Like those are two things that you have to, I think, hold fast to no matter what. But the technical job skills part of the work that's done is very different from a true Hampton to a Conrad Waldorf or even a Hilton, you know, so we have to vary that up. And a lot of, you know, I, I sort of joke that, you know, in our smaller hotels, the general manager is sort of everything. So how do we give that individual the tools to be and to make their hotel successful with their team members. So that could be everything from, you know, sort of um, iPad learning to e-learning, things that they can put team members in front of, and they actually don't necessarily have to be a proficient facilitator or coach. We have to sort of build in all of the things to make it very much foolproof. Um, and so that's, you know, it, it just really does vary on the brands and some are much more prescriptive um, in terms of roles. Okay. So when you started, you're, you're one brand, you're U.S. centric. Now you are 13 brands. So you have a level of complexity there, but you've also added a level of complexity. Uh, how many countries are you in? I mean, between language and localization and culture, uh, that, that's got to be a profound challenge. Yeah, we're in over 100 countries. Wow. Um, so 
from a language perspective, you bring up a great point. I mean, everything that we do now, we have to look at and say, all right, if this is hitting our team member populations, what are those standard languages that we absolutely must translate in? Um, what do we need to do if it is hitting our management population? What are the languages that those have to be in? So the enterprise-wide sort of scope of a global operation has been really exciting. And sort of that growth for us has been huge. And we've had to think about cultural things that we would have never thought of before. I mean, I think about we launched actually yesterday for the first time ever an enterprise-wide global sales skills process. We had had a number of different organizations within Hilton that had sort of developed their sales process. And we thought, you know, really the customer only sees Hilton. They don't see that the selling process is gonna be different for a franchise to managed or focus service versus full service. So we're really excited about this journey that we've been on. And one of the things we realized was even in developing a process and doing skills checks and sort of embedding some coaching into that process, we really had to make sure it resonated from a global perspective. And we didn't have anything that was culturally offensive. We didn't have anything that would not be culturally relevant. So what does that greeting look like in Japan versus what it looks like in um, you know, more Western countries? So anyhow, it's been an interesting journey and you have to think about all those things as you build globally relevant training. Yeah, you do. I, <clears throat> I think some of the companies that we've worked with that are global, um, they build a course it's in english it's very u.s focused and then just translate it well right. <laughs> it does you have to you have to start like six steps back you have to wait 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 in in built right into the recipe built right into the instructional design is where is this going what are those learners like um and so it it, it seems like the industry is getting more mature more culturally sensitive and more awakened to the idea that some of this stuff is not going to translate and you'd better think hard about it before uh, you start just throwing a translator at it and hoping that it works. Yeah, no, I think that's a good point. It also does the end user see themselves in the learning. I think that that's one of the things we really um, have been working much more diligently on. I would love to say we didn't fall victim to just translating, but we have done that certainly. We have to. And we have to, we've come out of that to say, all right, what should this look like? And also, you know, never underestimate the power of those sort of beta and pilot testing. And I think that's one of the things that we've gotten much more sophisticated at too, is how do we tweak it? How do we make sure that it's relevant? And if it's not going to be relevant, then how do we make sure that we make it relevant or, um, you know, figure out how we're going to overcome some of those obstacles that, that we, and, and we just never did that in the past. I don't think we did as good of a job as we probably could have. And I think, um, you know, technology certainly allowed us to do that too. I think that, you know, we can edit different things. It's much more nimble. We're able to, you know, use, and in Hilton, we're using a lot of virtual instructor led too, which I'd be happy to share with you a little bit more about that too, but that's really helped us be much more, regionally sensitive. Right. Yeah, good point. So you've broadened beyond the U.S. You've gone from one brand to 13 brands in 22 years. The technology has obviously changed, right? We're way beyond PowerPoints and, uh, and, and cartoons. Uh, you know, the, the, the stuff that was available when we first started to today is remarkable, and the technology is changing constantly. 
Um, and I think everybody that's going to be listening to this knows uh, that, knows those technological changes. My question to you is, have the learners changed? You know what I mean? Yeah. How, how you were able to communicate and facilitate learning 20 years ago, now we're dealing with millennials and um, a bunch of other generational folks for whom learning is very different. They're not passive recipients. Um, what, have, what have you seen? So just to complex, as I was thinking through our conversation, I was thinking your complexity to geography, the culture, size, 400,000 people, languages, right, technology. And then in the midst of all of that, you think, well, at least the learners are constant, but they're really not. Yeah, that's so great. We were, we've just been having this discussion, a very robust discussion about the demographic of our learners. And if you look at our team member population, which is our learner population, because we cover the globe, we've got a little over half are millennials, but that means that we also have half that don't fall in that, right? right. That are of different generations. So as we went through this journey on what kind of platform, how are we going to transform learning with Hilton? And if you look at, you know, anything you read lately, it's all about, you know, people, you know, take seven seconds to decide whether they're going to digest the content out on your LMS or that, you know, 23 minutes or less a week to really learn. So how do we take sort of those constraints about the modern learner and how do we then say, how are we going to help people through this change of what learning really looks like? Because if it was a classroom and now it's not necessarily always a classroom, if you only have 23 minutes a week and you've got to learn in the course of doing your work, how do we help bring people up to speed on that? And, and there's kind of a generalization that millennials tend to be very good at, you know, learning is at their fingertips. There's no not knowing are things that I've read, right? And you know, all of this is true, but then how do we bring others along? And so we've done a lot in that change management space that we didn't necessarily think through until we were in the midst of it. Like, how are we going to help our learners understand what a cohort looks like in a virtual instructor-led setting. So we've done little videos, we've done little embedded, you know, performance support tools, which didn't, you know, exist years ago. How do we embed that in the learning so that people know how to connect to the cohort that they're going to? How do we make sure they feel comfortable, to your point, Jerry, with the technology so that doesn't become an obstacle to the learning? So we're still navigating through that, but I think, you know, we've taken this approach that, We've got to educate the leaders first onto the why and, you know, what we did, why we did it, why it's important, and why it's even better than some of the traditional ways that we were, were teaching learning. Right. And then, you know, so we've had to sort of build that business case with them. And then also we realized even if we built that business case, some of them weren't comfortable with the technology that we were using. So that was more of an obstacle even than the learners. So we've had to sort of do the full court press on sort of change management, whether you're a leader supporting the learner or whether you're the learner trying to figure out um, how to use the new technology, you know, that we were delivering a lot of our learning in. So, well, and the, and the decision makers too tend to be the baby boomer generation. And, you know, we, we've worked with a number of very, very large companies where the people in the learning space are very comfortable. And the people signing proposals are saying, wait, what? 
what, what is this? How does it work? How do I know it works? And so there's there's an education process there too to to you know to get some of the C-suite people to understand what this actually what this actually is. It's it's the expectations that you bring to learn. So I'm I'll just tell you I was born in 1964. So I am the last of the baby boomers. My expectation in learning is I'm going to sit in a classroom. I'm going to be there for 50 minutes. Someone is going to talk to me for 45 minutes, and then I have five minutes questioning at the end. That's what I expect. To go from that to seven seconds that I'm going to decide, that a millennial is going to decide to engage or disengage, um, those statistics are, are something. And even, you know, Television. Television is 60 minutes, 44 minutes of it is programmed, 16 minutes of it is commercial. So my attention is really 11 minutes long, and then there's a commercial, and then you get my attention again for 11 minutes. So we've gone from 50 minutes to 11 minutes to 7 seconds. Yeah, it's just, it, it's amazing. And how do you impart any sort of skill or have an opportunity for people to practice when you really only have that condensed amount of time to get the skill or that they're learning that skill? So it's, re it's really fascinating. I think, you know, in the classroom, wasn't the challenge always, and I'm Gen X, but I, but I would say the, the class the classroom sort of experience was you were exhausted after those two or three days in the classroom. And then you're like, what did I learn last week? <laughs> so one of the things that I really love about what we're trying to do now is it's much more, I sort of alluded to this, moving from facilitator to facilitator coach. So like, how do we build these coaching opportunities into that? So you get a snack size, bite sized piece of learning. You go out and practice it. You come back. And to your point, the end of an ILT session was to talk about it. Like, what did you learn in the classroom? Well, now they're really being able to say, okay, I learned this in a classroom, whether it was virtual or whether it was an e-learning session or whatever. I practiced it, and here was the end result. And so I do think it's really shifted, um, but it takes a lot more work. It does. There's, there, we've seen a couple of things. One is, is the expectation of creativity. So our company has put an awful lot of focus on the creative side. Um, we've got the young, hip, pink-haired, cool kids in the back, right, that, that just are crazy creative. Because you can have great content, but if the creativity isn't there. Then we've seen some of our competitors have the really cool graphic stuff, but the, inst the, the theory isn't there. You know, the actual learning isn't there. Um, and, uh, you know, so to, to capture someone's attention and then to reinforce, I just, a couple weeks ago I read, I was asked to, to give a little speech, and I used this, this quote. I said, you know, when stuff is presented, 50% um, of it, of whatever's presented, is forgotten in an hour. 70% uh, is forgotten the next day, and 90% is forgotten after one week. That's terrifying. It is terrifying. You know, so that not only do I have to capture your attention with great content, creativity, but there's got to be a reinforcement uh, part to it. My hands have to be engaged. My feet have to be engaged. My brain has to be engaged because otherwise it's not going to stick. That's a great point. And I think that trying it on to your point, that kinesthetic part of it, right, which goes back to old instructional design theory, like there, that still holds true, right? So whether you're learning how to string a 
you know, guitar um, on YouTube, unless you actually do it after you've watched it, you're not going to probably remember. And I think we have to think about that in the space of work, right? So if it's setting up a breakfast buffet, if it's how you want that room set, what the guest expectation is when they walk into the room, how do we deliver on that? You have to actually, I think, try those pieces on and then, you know, get some feedback or some coaching like, well, this wasn't exactly the way we wanted it. Here's what it should look like. Or here's the why too. But I think the sort of kinesthetic part of this is something that is really important for anyone that's learning a new skill, right? Unless you're going to try it on. And I was using the example like of our housekeepers or our folks that are setting up, you know, buffets. I mean, for them to be able to do it and understand the why behind it's set up this way, why does the guest want it this particular way in a room, which is why we're teaching it that way. I think that unless you try it and get some feedback on, hey, here's where you met the mark, you didn't meet the mark. Those are the kinds of things that I think our learners really want to know. And it's not that they didn't want to know that before, but I think our learning was very much designed in the past on here's the SOP or the standard. Unidirectional, just here's the information, memorize it, and and move on. It sounds to me like you're a Simon Sinek fan. (laughs) I am, actually. That's so funny. But, yeah, so I I, I agree that – I agree with a lot of what – you know, his points. But I but I think that for us, we're also having to make sure that our learning touches folks that are everywhere from sort of that, you know, eighth grade education level up to, you know, advanced, you know, advanced degrees. So I, I think, you know, that's also a interesting um, challenge and opportunity for us and what kind of makes what we do in this space exciting. Yeah. How much of, of, your learning universe, how much is instructor-led, how much is virtual instructor-led, how much is blended, how much is straight-up e-learning, and how do you decide that? Yeah, you know, somebody was asking us the percentages, you know, a couple of days ago, and I haven't gone back and sort of recalibrated. I I would say that a majority of what we're doing is probably e-learning. Um, I would say that we probably have as a close second uh, blended learning approach. And then, you know, instructor-led was always a much narrower scope, but we have probably taken about half of what was instructor-led at this point and moved that over into a virtual platform. So I have to kind of get those percentages right for us, but, you know, we as a large global organization, obviously we're not... Um, heavily tilted towards instructor-led just because of the movement of people around that would have been very difficult to do. But we have just sort of as an anecdote, we had about 20 sort of signature instructor-led programs where we did orientation and onboarding for some of our highest level like general manager populations. Those were programs that we flew people in um, for. And some of those have to happen. Some of those, right? I There was a period of time where the pendulum swung so hard to e-learning that we thought everything can be done this way. Right. And it's like, you can teach me all the physics of welding and I can take all the safety classes. But at the end of the day, I still don't know how to weld. And uh, there's something where I need a person standing next to me saying, do this, don't do that. And uh, But I, I think that pendulum has swung back. And I, I, I hope, uh, as learning professionals, we're getting better at saying, wait a minute. What's actually I, – I know it's cheaper probably to do e-learning. 
and the finance people are going to be happy. But is this actually going to do what it is supposed to do? Yeah. And you sort of asked me, Jerry, a little bit about like, how do we determine? And I think things that we tried to do is say anything that is sort of entry level, basic, um, either knowledge or basic skills, we've really tried to use, you know, a blended learning approach, an e-learning approach, or use our virtual instructor-led learning that has then some of these ingredients of, um, you know, pre-work and post-work where it's either e-learning or it's a combination platter. I would say for advanced skills, things where you're trying to get people in a room to be able to build a strategy or develop a framework or do some of the things that um, are more complex, we have absolutely, to your point, said we have to do those things in in person in, in an in person forum. So it's striking that balance between what are you trying to impart, what is sort of that population look like. And then what do we reserve for those times where we're going to be together and what does that look like? And, and I think it has, and it constantly is getting sort of recalibrated, but that's for us, we've sort of said, Hey, if it's, it's foundational, if it's basic knowledge that we're trying to impart, then I think those are some of the things that we can use technology to help us. We, we kind of think in terms of, of skills, uh, Skills work pretty well often for for e-learning and and digital uh, uh, communication, um, and then knowledge, and then the last category of wisdom. Um, wisdom doesn't really work very well <laughs> for e-learning. Uh, you can do scenarios, right? You you can do some scenarios where people are building up a body of knowledge, thinking, okay, what are my core principles here? What does wisdom dictate that I do here? What choice should I make based on the wisdom that I've learned? But an awful lot of that is is uh, transferred in a very personal setting, uh, more of a mentor uh, type of relationship. So, yeah, it's I think everybody's struggling with that to figure out which goes in which box. And uh, I think I hope that we're past the uh, one size fits all kind of way of thinking. Um, what does excellent learning look like for you? What are your markers? How do you know when um, you have accomplished what you set out to accomplish? Yeah, you know, I, when I came back to learning um, in about, I guess, a year and a half ago, one of the things that I said to my team after looking at sort of what we've done, we've done an amazing amount of work in the time that I had been gone and sort of over into the talent acquisition space. And one of the things that I gathered with the team and hearing themes and threads was there were basically three things that I felt were really important to have excellence in the learning space. And as simple as those are, um, I will share with you what I what the team and I have sort of rallied around. And that is, it needs to be simple. It needs to be something that's, you know, simply um, executed. It needs to be something that's simply understood. If it gets too complex, I think people shut down. If we have multiple versions of things or multiple sources, that's not helpful. So the simplicity or idea of simplicity in the learning was really important for us. I think the second piece was it needed to have, um, back to an earlier point, sort of this modern modernization element to it. So how do we make it 
fresh and modern um, at the same time that is really challenging the way we probably used to put learning together? Is it just, you know, death by job aid and sort of the traditional way we used to do it? Well, it it turns out that art and aesthetics and beauty matter. That's right, especially today when you're competing with so much amazing content. Yeah. Um, that it's, you know, sleek and sexy and interesting and fast. And to your point about commercials, you know, catching your attention. So how do we give that modern flair? And then the third piece for me, which I think is the most important, is the age old, you know, it was a challenge 15 years ago. It's still a challenge today. And that is how do we measure it? So sort of this idea of simplification, modernization and measuring our learning. And where could we insert some some performance metrics in a much more deliberate way into what we're doing to me was really how we're going to move this function forward and what I feel is important in the scope of learning and transforming learning in any organization. So I don't know if that answered your question, Jerry, but those were kind of like the baseline for me and what we continue to sort of chip away at. So simplicity, beauty, and measurability. I like it. Yeah, sort of that modernization, I think beauty, you could argue, but yes, modernization and that that piece for me was really sure. important. So <clears throat> your last point kind of leads me into my next question, and it's, it's uh, you know, it's, it's the one where we hear all the time. So there, we, we usually are dealing with people in, inside of an HR department or, you know, the chief learning officer or CHRO or whatever, and um, the conferences that we've been to sitting around, you know, having coffee, everybody asks the ROI question. What's your answer to the return on investment for learning? Yeah. <laughs> wow. And everybody hates that question because you go, well, uh, or, right, I, it's the old, well, try ignorance, and that's, that's an easy one. Uh, and there's certain things we have to communicate, we have to do them efficiently, but... Um, This is a bit of a quantitative, qualitative analysis question, but how do we take what is so often qualitative and make it quantitative? Yeah, and, you know, so I'll answer it in a way because, listen, if I I wish I had all the answers, but one of the things that we've really tried to get rigor around is to the point that you make about what are we trying to accomplish from the start? And I think one of the things that I realized coming back into this is that are we asking really good questions about the results that we want to see? Is there something quantitative from the beginning that we're trying to achieve? And again, we are helping our customers, right? We're developing the training for a group of our operational teams that are trying to deliver either a behavior or whatever. So are we asking those tough questions up up front or are we not? And if we don't ask up front what they want to see, then it's really hard to build a program around um, having any results if you're not sure what they're trying to do. So for us, it was getting some quantitative discussion up front and building that into the programs to then be able to say, this will be a marker of success for us. Like, what does that look like? So I know it means different things for different groups, right? So in our sales learning, we've gone in with a very deliberate, okay, these are the four things that we will see in terms of our business results that should change as a result of our six-step process for selling. 
Um, and we have been very deliberate about that. So that's a little bit easier on the sales side, right? You know, you kind of tie it to that. There are other things like when we're trying to teach, you know, the honors benefits or we're trying to teach something like that. What is it that success is going to look like? Can we tie that to, you know, how many additional honors enrollees we have? But again, having those discussions so that we have those markers up front, I think has been really, really important. So it's not just, well, it seemed like it went well. It felt good. Right, right. People generally liked it. I got some nice emails. And we still do level one evaluations, of course, but it's getting to that, you know, two and three. And then one of the things we've inserted two into our sales piece is also, you know, looking at the behaviors, not only from the perspective of the learner, do they feel like they have adopted, you know, the new skill, but also putting a coach element into it where their leader also has to evaluate that. So I think different programs have called for different things and you don't put that level of intensity into everything, but I think we need to be much more deliberate about what's the end result the customer's looking for. Because I think sometimes we have a lot of scrap training because of the fact people don't think about what is it that we're trying to do in the end and what are we trying to change? And if we can't answer those questions, um, we can all get really excited about it. Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to change anything. That's that's our, our biggest challenge, particularly when we're working with a client that's new to e-learning. The goal is to take the instructor-led training and make it virtual. Okay, we can do that. Why? What, you know, back to Simon Sinek, start with why. Simon is a, is a friend of mine. So, uh, you know, why are, we, why are we doing this? What do we hope to accomplish? The, those are often the most difficult conversations we have with our client because we'll keep pushing yep. to say, and this is supposed to do what? Well, it's supposed to be online. We know that part. <laughs> what what is it that you're going to be able to say is better uh, after this uh, as opposed to before it? Those those are sometimes really really hard questions to answer, and sometimes we're not, you know, I, we're trying to serve our clients well by forcing them to ask that. Usually, what happens is, let's create this great thing. It looks really cool. Everybody likes it. We roll it out. Great feedback. Oh yeah, we should be measuring some stuff. So I, I very much like your emphasis on that is essential at the very beginning of the process. If you miss that at the be beginning of the process, it's almost impossible to capture it as an afterthought. Yeah, that's what we, we've certainly found that. I mean, and we can go back and we're starting to go back and sort of audit through programs and say, you know, this wasn't designed with sort of the end in mind. And, and you know, people also get passionate about it. Like I, I hear you when you say, the clients you work with, um, you know, it's hard to get them there. They we struggle. Have, yeah, they do. And we have ones that are, you know, fall in love with the idea or the concept of what they want to do. So it's very difficult to sort of bring them back to center to say, I get that you're in love with this. I get that you're in love with the product or what you're trying to communicate and you're passionate about it. But in the context of learning, here's what we need to do. And those are more sophisticated, more difficult conversations. And, you know, it's, um, it's, it's hard, you know, to, to do that. But I think it's the right thing to do if we're going to have people make an investment in their time. And if they only have 23 minutes a week, and if they only are going to determine whether they like something in seven seconds, we better make sure that we're using their time 
wisely and they're going to be able to you know do something different or better coming out of it and that's yeah that's good stewardship of their time good stewardship of company resources good stewardship of your time yeah so yeah to honor the learner is uh needs to be one of, one of the very first goals and and to treat the learners with with dignity and respect um so jennifer i end every podcast with the with the exact same question what's your favorite learning story and you can take a second. What's your favorite? It can be a success. Some people have told stories of failure, uh, where they tried something and didn't work. What's, what's your favorite story related to your work in leading, learning, training, people development? Um, what moved you? Yeah, you know, I think for me, my probably my favorite learning stories are when I was actually doing more of the hands-on sort of learning. And I think all of us probably have started there at some point, but when you truly feel like you've, you've changed someone's life and you get that feedback after they've gone through the experience or they've gone through the learning and they give you such a personal example of how it really transformed the way they lead and, you know, the way that they deliver, um, you know, to their customers. So I, I have a number of different stories, but one specific that comes to mind is, you know, I was working with a leader uh, many moons ago that we were trying to help impart sort of some basic, you know, um, foundational leadership skills all around sort of communicating, communicating, um, you know, in difficult situations, managing expectations, those kinds of things, sort of that 100 level you know, first time leader leading others. Um, and the person would periodically send me sort of these emails, you know, telling me about how they used or practiced the skill that we had taught them and how it really helped them think about their sort of role as a leader and uh, how they were a better listener, how they had become more of a balanced and confident leader. And that, you know, of course they were saying, you know, we, I was inspirational. I don't know about that. I think that again, a good, the good learning sort of happens when you strike a chord with someone that they say, Hey, I can use this and it's practical and it, and it makes sense. So, you know, those are the kinds of things that I keep in that file of, you know, the kudos file that you look at when you're sort of having a rough day and say, well, how did you make a difference? Yep. You, you shouldn't stare at them, but you need to look at them occasionally. And yeah, sometimes you even hear people say, well, not only did it, you know, was that beneficial to me at work, but it was beneficial to me and my family or in my neighborhood or in my community or something. Those are, yeah. So that's, that's great stuff when, when it connects and it makes a difference, um, then it all feels right. Absolutely. And that's why we love doing this, right? I mean, absolutely. People's lives, um, you know, whenever you're in this space, whether you're in education um, or at the corporate level or any type of education. So I, I feel honored to have been able to do it for as long as I have. Yeah, well, fantastic. Our guest today has been Jennifer Rink. She is the Vice President of Learning at, uh, at Hilton. And Jennifer, just thank you so much for the gift of your time and, and for taking time to have a conversation and and doing a little bit of thinking and reflecting and, and thinking about your history and, and, and that of Hilton. Uh, I just can't thank you enough for your time. Well, thank you so much, Jerry. I really enjoyed it.